Well, let's take some time and look to God's Word together in Luke chapter 16. We've reached the 16th chapter as the Lord continues His journey to Jerusalem to die for sin. And He doesn't really, the Lord doesn't really turn a complete corner here, but He continues to drive home some points that get more and more direct, particularly as it relates to the things that keep people from the gospel that keep people from actually seeing clearly their spiritual need. And as you know, Jesus has been speaking in parables, and this will be no different. In fact, as he moves into a whole new discussion that we will be talking about this week and next, he hasn't really departed from the format of telling little stories and drilling home the point. You remember back in chapter 14, he started telling some parables for very unique reasons, and he was confronting the Pharisees because for so many ways they had, they had kept, been kept from the gospel by their own foolishness. In early chapter 14, the Pharisees forfeited eternal fruit for earthly honor. You remember he told the story about they, they invited dinner guests or, or they were at a banquet and he talked about inviting dinner guests and they would only invite those that would honor them in return and in the banquet Jesus told the story because he was noticing they were looking for honor themselves in choosing the chief seats. And he made the point that, look, you, you're inviting to dinner only those who can reciprocate. And you're obviously not interested in your spiritual condition because you're looking for human glory, human honor. You're willing to forfeit the honor of God for some temporary human accolade It's also in chapter 14 where he says you're ignoring the eternal implications of those things. It's foolish to imagine that you can amass earthly trophies and forfeit what is most important, your soul. He said the same thing in verse 33 of chapter 14. None of you can be my disciple who doesn't give up all his own possessions. That wasn't a socialist comment. It wasn't uh, equal distribution of wealth comment. It was everything that you have has been given by God and it must be on the line if, if compared to eternal realities. It goes on the altar if you want to follow Christ. It belongs to him. He does with it what he chooses. We have no right to anything in the economy of God. What he gives, he gives for his purposes. If we begin to use it for our purposes, we lose something of what it means to follow Christ And some are kept completely from the gospel because they attach themselves to everything here. By the time you get to chapter 15, he'd he'd notice that the Pharisees claimed a relationship with God, but they don't have the same heart for sinners. And so he told this story about the lost sheep and the lost coin and basically drives home the point that God's heart is to seek and search those who have a spiritual need. You're not even doing that, Israel. You don't even have an interest in seeing the sinner come to God, yet you claim to be closest to God. And also in chapter 15, he points out that they resented the mercy of God. He tells the story about the prodigal and the older brother's response to the mercy of the father in that story. And it exposes the pride and the condescension and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And so it... Even though in chapter 16, verse 1, he now turns to give some specific instruction to the disciples, so says the first sentence. It's no wonder, however, that even though he's giving some crucial instruction 
to his closest comrades, it exposes Israel's sin once again. And in this particular case, the sin of greed and how the love of material gain and earthly comfort means for them gross neglect of their original calling. They don't take care of their own spiritual life so that they actually have secured their eternal future, and they don't take care of the needs of all those to whom they should be giving an influence. They were to be a channel through which the news of forgiveness was to be proclaimed globally. They had it all. They were supposed to understand eternal things. They were supposed to live for the glory of God and put earthly life and earthly resources into proper perspective. They were to use those privileges to bless others as a funnel out of which would flow the grace of God. They had the holy law of God given directly to their prophets, written down for all generations. They had the center of worship in Jerusalem and the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies as part of their worship and witness to the world. And so often in their history, they were given by God all the wealth and resources of their enemy nations as they got rid of sin in the land and the wealth of those enemy nations came to Israel. You know what? They were supposed to use all of God's good gifts for the purpose of advancing redemptive purposes, and they did not. In fact... They saw themselves as righteous on their own, so they missed the message of forgiveness for themselves in their Messiah, and therefore they couldn't pass on that message to those around them. No earthly, no eternal fruit came from their hardened and unbelieving hearts. They hated the lost sinners around them, and so instead of reaching out with gospel truth, they missed opportunities to bear eternal fruit. And all how they loved earthly goods, for the power that it gained them. They loved the honor of men and the power over men that it gave them, and so they cared nothing about the eternal implications for the souls of those around them. They just used people for their own ends. And they loved earthly wealth and material comfort so much it blinded them to the reasons God gave such things. God gives his people all things richly to enjoy, just as he does in the common grace of God, allow the sun to shine on unbelievers. But as he gives his people all things richly to be enjoyed, he expects God's people to think like he does, that those things are to be used to maximize the influence of your life for eternal good, eternal things. Look at chapter 16. Let me read verse 14 and verse 15 to you, notice that the Pharisees were eavesdropping on this conversation that Jesus has just been having and the story that he tells, which we'll look at in a moment. But verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. And so he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. That is to say, they justify their life, their existence, as if it measures up to whatever standard they believe is the best. They believe they will get there to God. They're closest to God. They are above everyone. Jesus says, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wow, that's 
strong language by Jesus, but he drives home the point to the Pharisees, look, you're consumed with what is highly esteemed among men. You look at earthly trophies, earthly achievements, earthly gain, material comforts, the things of this earth, and, and you think those are to be highly esteemed, and, and you love the accolades of other cultures and other nations and other peoples. And in fact, you like the idea that you were God's chosen nation. You even use that to make yourself highly esteemed and therefore justified in how you view yourself. But Jesus says God sees those things as detestable. And he uses a term that means abominable. It's an abomination. Things that bring ultimate destruction. You don't, you don't care about people's souls in eternity. All you care about is right now, here and now. And you know, beloved, that Jesus had warned many times about how the love of material wealth and earthly comforts causes a person to become blind to the condition of their eternal soul. All the way back in chapter 6, woe to those who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Look, if you, he didn't mean have money, he mean if you love money, woe to those who love it, who love to justify themselves for having it, who find security in it, because you have the comfort that you're, you're going to have, and that's it. God owes you nothing. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, the warning of the fool who stored up all his treasures and that night his very soul was required of them, but it won't do him any good, all of his barns, all of his money. Jesus keeps pressing, pressing the issue. In fact, later in chapter 16 here, he's going to press the issue with the rich man and Lazarus, that little story where the rich man chose earthly splendor and comfort over eternal treasure. How foolish. By the time Luke records the 18th chapter, you find Jesus saying, look, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who loves money, loves their wealth, to come into the kingdom. What was it that Jesus had said on this occasion at the text before us that incited the Pharisees to scoff as they did? Well, it was this little parable that Jesus turned to his disciples and began to tell them. And it's a parable about how commendable it is. I mean, this is basically the gist, though we'll dig into it this weekend next. He is giving a story about how commendable it is for a person to do whatever it, it takes to secure the wealth and comfort of heaven for yourself and all whom you influence. That's essentially what he does with this story. He is talking about how commendable it is, how wise, how shrewd, to use the, the translation that some of you have, how commendable it is to do whatever it takes to secure the wealth and comfort of eternity for yourself and anyone you can influence. And Jesus does it in a way that puts a kind of unexpected twist on this funny little story that he tells. Follow along as I read. Verse 1, he was saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. 
And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by the means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And we'll stop right there. And of course, I read to you that the Pharisees were listening to that and began to scoff. Now, the story is told, as I said, directly to Jesus' disciples, but these leaders of Israel were listening in, and they became offended at the implications that seemed obvious to those who heard the parable. And though at first glance there are certain verses, particularly verse 9 in the text, that seem challenging to grasp, the overall lesson that Jesus gives here, which we'll, which we'll try to hammer home this morning, and then next week we'll cover some of the, the lessons that unfold after the story, the overall lesson is fairly clear and rather simple. This is a text about the danger of being consumed with temporary things earthly comforts, material wealth, and all that's available in the world to enjoy, to be consumed with those things while utterly missing the only reality that matters in the end, and that is our eternal soul. We use and enjoy the earth freely given to us by God, but how often do we become so driven by material wealth and earthly pursuits that we get dragged completely off track of the things that matter most to God? When we look at our lives on a daily basis, we have to evaluate this. I read an article recently that was called The Deadly Drama of Consumerism, and the author talked about invitations. You get invitations all day long. You say, invitations to what? This is how the author put it. Invitations to participate in the human drama of consumerism are extended to all of us. Consumerism, the idolatrous pursuit of pleasure through stuff, can be worshipped by both the lavish and the simple. Like all the other idols, consumerism is just an empty, useless facade. Consumerism itself is starving, and because we emulate the characteristics of what we worship, its worshipers are unsatisfied and never filled. The idolatrous pursuit of pleasure through stuff works against the way God designed us. So, of course, it leaves us miserable. 
The article goes on to point out that that was indeed the first lie that Satan perpetrated on Adam and Eve. You don't have what will satisfy God has kept something from you. Instead, the article says, we've hewed out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water, a reference to Jeremiah 2. Instead of living by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, even as we enjoy the things of creation, we treat God's gifts as God's so true. And so, the article says, the invitations keep coming to participate in the drama of consumerism instead of the drama of redemption. If the consumer is trained to consume temporary fillers, she will be, keep grasping for her next fix. If the consumer can collect the tokens that tell him that he embodies what the images promise him, he'll be satisfied for the time being. We emulate the idol, desperate and starved. The dark irony of consumerism is that we are the ones who are being consumed. It's so true, isn't it? Advertisements, not advertisements per se in terms of marketing, although that's the case, but just, just the way that our culture, the ethos of the culture, is all about getting us away from eternal realities and into something temporary, gratifying, immediately, uh, something we can set as an achievement, a trophy, things we can attach ourselves to, temporary satisfactions. When we look at our lives on a daily basis, we have to evaluate what is most important to us. And so we just start to think about questions we can begin to generally ask that this particular story and the lessons in it are going to help us with. Because if you don't get this down, you could find yourself where Hebrews 3 was speaking about it with regard to Israel that I read earlier. You could find yourself with a seed of unbelief and not really trust in what is eternal past the threshold of death and attach yourself to what's here and end up losing access to the rest that is only found in Christ. You will not remain steadfast if you are proven to be in hardened unbelief. A love of earthly things, a love of material gain, even a love of money as the Pharisees are chided for it in verse 14. So just take a little bit of general inventory. Does how we live reflect a priority interest in eternal things? Does how you live, if someone intersected with your life on a daily basis, would eternal things be um, intersecting the course of your conversation and your pursuits and your general activities on a daily basis to one degree or another? Do you carefully consider your life pursuits, thinking wisely about whether something will advance spiritual gains or threaten them? I mean, I'll tell you, the stuff that comes across our digital world, uh, we just sort of add indiscriminately. The, the message being sent to the young people in our families, the children from the earliest ages, is that anything that comes through, you just take it. Just, just enjoy it. It's ours to enjoy. And parents will consider things neutral that have strings attached to things that aren't neutral. And they'll just let you, their families be exposed to this stuff, and it builds up into a young person a feeding of the appetites of the old, unredeemed part of us. And suddenly, temporary fulfillments become the appetite of our life. Do you carefully consider your life as it relates to what will threaten spiritual gains or what will advance them? Do you think about how 
You can use what you enjoy and what you have for greater spiritual influence. Not just your time, not just your talent, but your resources. Here's another question. Do you nurture a mindset that is concerned about how others around you will face eternity? Or do you just interact with the world consuming whatever God allows us freely to enjoy so long as it isn't overtly evil? You, you enjoy it. That's great. God gives it to enjoy. Solomon said that very thing in Ecclesiastes. Enjoy the fruit of your life and the fruit of your hands and the wonderful things given to us freely from God in those riches. That's great. He supplies us with all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. But do you nurture in the middle of all that a mindset that is concerned with how others will face eternity? Or do you think very little about the spiritual condition of those with whom you come in contact? Or even securing your own walk with Christ, being faithful in your own walk with Christ, because if you don't, you can end up like the Pharisees having been a phony all along. Just some qualifications at the outset. It is true that we enjoy these things because they are from the Lord. God supplies them. They're for our enjoyment. And for those to whom God gives an abundance of resources, earthly material goods, they must always remember that God does not forbid having them. You don't want people with whom God has given... uh, many resources somehow suddenly having a sense that they're wrong to have them that isn't a sin there were lots of people in God's family who were extremely wealthy the scriptures give a testimony that it is God who gives the power to get wealth Deuteronomy 8 18 Job was wealthy Abraham was wealthy Isaac was wealthy Jacob was wealthy Solomon of course was massively wealthy and Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament is a notable figure who had money. Scripture does not forbid money, but of course, the love of it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Isn't it funny how the culture kind of quotes that and wrongly quotes it? Uh, Money's the root of all evil. You should correct them. No, 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 no. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It is the love of it. To love money is to worship an idol. It is to fix your hope on something that has absolutely no power to secure the future. This is why the Proverbs say in Proverbs 23, don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. Not not that you don't go to work, not that you don't take care of your business, not that you don't set aside whatever you need to set aside for family and heritage and inheritance, but that you not give consideration to it to the neglect of your eternal realities. That's the point. When you set your eyes on resources, it's gone. Boy, we saw that so clearly at certain seasons of raising kids. I mean, it was amazing. We would go down to Costco, which is glad to take your money. (laughs) We went up to the $200 club and then the $300 club. And then we got into the $400 club. (laughs) I'd bring those groceries home, put them in the pantry. I'm thinking, now that's exciting. There's a full pantry. And my two boys and a couple of friends would come, and it would be done in about three hours. (laughs) Just a war zone. I'm like, man, money goes fast. It does. you got to teach your children that these these are values and measures used to trade commodities. It isn't an end in and of itself. For wealth, the Proverbs say, certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. 
absolutely true. The wealthiest king over the wealthiest empire on the earth around the mid-900s B.C. said, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Ecclesiastes 5.10 It is the love of money that, that was rooted in the satanic onslaught of the heart of Judas. It was money coveting money that led Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit, Acts 5. The love of money causes people to forget God, and that's why Agur prayed in Proverbs 30, Lord, only give me my portion. I know I will forget you if you do not uh, take heed to my prayer to give me only what I can handle. Riches are deceitful, Mark 4.19, Jesus said. Not even one who has an abundance has the subsistence of his life in such things. His life doesn't consist in his possessions. There's the issue. We're to seek first God's kingdom. There, there it is. And, and in this little story, as it will unfold to us, Jesus is basically going to send the message, what opportunities have been lost because you did not take what God had given you and considered how to use it for the securing of your own eternal riches and using it rightly for the influence that God calls you to have through it. Listen, if you are here and you are in Christ, God has given you gifts and talents and resources and a life ahead of you, whatever it is he's given you to do, and you are to think about the fact that he's given it and the purpose for which he's given it and the fruit he wants to bear from it. And that is your main priority, your main concern. Anything less is dangerous and threatening to our spiritual lives. How many opportunities have you lost to secure what is, what is a satisfying look at eternal things compared to temporal things? What opportunities have been lost to let go of this life and all of the, the temporary satisfactions that it affords? What opportunities have you had to collect earthly trophies to the neglect of human relationships where eternal souls are, are involved? How much of this culture and creature comforts do you obsess over instead of making sure that you have no grip on them and God can take them or leave them whenever he chooses? How many times have you missed an opportunity to pray for someone who's unsaved, who's at close range with you, you know their name, you know their life, and you haven't prayed for them because an eternal soul does not matter as much to you? How much of your own sanctification and consistent growth in grace has, has happened? How much neglect of it because you, you don't think enough about the assurance of your own eternal reward we are at times so immersed in the materialistic ethos of the culture that we actually allow our mind and our heart regular exposure to earthly consumption without biblical checks against it. This is very dangerous. And so Jesus speaks here through a story to make that point. For a few moments before we finish our time. Let's just look at the parable. I call it the parable of the savvy steward. There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering 
his possessions. So the first thing we note is in the story is that the crooked practices of this guy get discovered as the story goes, and charges were brought forward. The manager was reported to the rich man as squandering his possessions. There, there is no sense in the story in which it has to be investigated. By the time the rich man comes, the evidence is so clear. Someone in the estate or the household, according to the story, has reported on the guy that he is double dealing. He is doing things that swindle. He is dishonest. He is unrighteous. He's for himself. He's attaching himself to only what pleases him at the expense of the rich man to, for whom he works, at the expense of his estate and his future. This guy is crooked, and he's reported on, and charges are brought forward. So, in the story, there is no court of law, investigation, any of that. The rich man called him, verse 2, and said to him, what is this I hear about you? He's not doing an investigation there with that question. The question has, in the original language, more of the tone of, I can't believe that you would do this to me. What is this I'm hearing about you, the trusted guy? You're all about yourself. And so he says, go get the books. By the way, this wouldn't have been a simple walk. He's got several accounts, according to the there's just the nature of the details of the story. This would be a very wealthy guy with lots of business interests. So given accounting of your management was go get the books, collect all the data, and bring it to me. I want to see it face to face. And by the way, you're terminated. You can no longer be manager. So his crooked practices are discovered in Jesus' little parable of the savvy steward, and he's held immediately responsible, and he's terminated. Life is about to change for him. And he can see the handwriting on the wall, and so that's why, as the story continues, very short and it's very simple, he has a crafty plan that, he has, that he's going to implement. He doesn't come up with the plan until verse 4, but in verse 3, he makes a careful assessment of his personal limitations. Why is this important? Because later, when Jesus says, look, you ought to be like this guy about eternal things, he is making that point. Make a careful assessment of your personal limitations. So many times, people do not concern themselves with eternal things because they are not looking carefully at the issue. I mean, people all the time, even when you're sharing the gospel with unbelievers, but, but even particular shallow Christians, they, they, you try to get them to understand the direction they're going is not going to be good for their moral life, and they just ignore you. And why do they ignore you? They don't want to make careful assessment. We are one of the most shallow cultures, spiritually speaking. The evangelical culture doesn't want to think seriously about anything. Why? Because for nearly 50 years, we've been pumping out junk food from pulpits and Bible studies and raising up leaders who are mere warm bodies. How can the sheep make any kind of careful assessment of anything when the grid against which they compare their life is just soft nothing? Look, beloved. This guy in the story, it's deliberate that he makes a careful assessment of personal limitations. And what does, he, what does he assess? Well, it's very interesting. First of all, he says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. So he, I've got physical limitations here, he says. 
And you say, well, that just seems like it's beneath his dignity. Well, I suppose that's part of it. He, he's gone from perhaps a white-collar high-end job to a, to a laborer digging uh, ditches or whatever. So perhaps it's beneath his dignity. But I think he's also thinking about long-term marketability here. How long can I sustain a living doing manual labor at my age? I mean, after all, it's going to be more hours because of a lower wage, so greater physical wear and tear. He's looking at a shorter future here to secure what he needs to live. So he knows that his physical life is limited. That's the point Jesus makes of that little statement. He needs, he needs some way in this next season of life to secure and sustain his life. That's part of the point Jesus is going to make to Christians. When you think about eternal things, you ought to be making an assessment of your current limitations and that eternity is all about your, your rewards and fruitfulness. So you ought to be attaching yourself to the eternal. You ought to be doing what it takes right now to secure all the strength that is needed for making it all the way there. That's his point. And notice he says, I... I am ashamed to beg. <laughs> you might be thinking in your mind, get over it. Man, you've got no money. Get over it. Well, he's already looked at his physical life, which is limited. Now he's looking at his credibility, which is going to be limited. In other words, yes, it involves personal shame to beg, but lots of people get past that. When you are hungry enough, lots of people get past that. You see them all over cities, not the professional beggars who throw a little dust on their face. I'm talking about people who are utterly destitute and have been for some time. It is a desperate condition. They'll beg. He can get over the personal shame. That's not what concerns him. What concerns him is he's, he's less likely to ever get a real job. And worse, if he's a beggar, that means fewer and fewer people who are decent are going to associate with him, maybe even cut off from his family, and more and more of the worst kind of people are going to associate with him. To be a beggar, he's going to have to associate with the worst kind of people. This could shorten his life, certainly his livelihood. In fact, the more money, the, the little money that he makes begging, he's going to have to fight and scrap to hold on to it because he's going to be hanging around the criminal element. That's, he can see that. I'm ashamed to beg, and it's going to be a long-term deal. So what does he do? Well... In his crafty plan, he makes a careful assessment of personal limitations, and then something bubbles up into his mind. That's the sense of verse 4, I know what I shall do. The, the verbiage here in the original language is like this bubbled up into his mind. He's, uh, this is an aha moment. Ah, and, and he, because he's thinking carefully about his future and the next season, because he's thinking wisely, some insights come. Look, if you'll just take time to think about the scriptures as it applies to some area of your life, you're going to gain insight. If you just skip across the surface of principles in scripture as they apply to the Christian life, you can't become insightful. You can't grow in your insightfulness if you're not willing to carefully consider these issues. This guy is a crafty business guy. Yes, he's a pagan. His money gained is unrighteous money, no question about it. He's all about the world. And even a pagan, if he thinks long enough and hard enough, gets clever. He gets clever. In worldly things, nonetheless, clever. 
So what does he do? Well, we'll just call it this. He makes today's sacrifices for tomorrow's rewards. He makes today's sacrifices for tomorrow's rewards. Notice. So that when I'm removed from the management, verse 4, people will welcome me into their homes. (laughs) He wants some shelter and some resources and some friends, some suppliers, people that could take care of him if he were out of work. And so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He's doing this quickly, it says. He began to say to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. That would be about a crop's worth, an entire grove worth. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And he This is happening, according to verse 5, with each one of his master's debtors. Now, in the case of the first one, what what he's doing is securing his liabilities. But in the case of the first one, it may look like he's doing something else dishonest. Some commentators actually think he's doing something dishonest. But actually, what he's doing is, is likely, in the story, he's cutting his commission or interest that he's embedded into the commodity. The fact is, in Jewish law, you couldn't charge interest. You just had to trade the commodity at whatever the fair price was. In pagan law at that time, and I assume Jesus uh, probably has a little bit of both in mind, often the interest would be embedded into the price of the commodity. You wouldn't have him doing something criminal here, or the, the point would be moot. The owner, the rich man, would take him to jail if he were further ripping him off. Uh, the point here is he's added commission, added interest into the price of whatever was traded, and that was what he was going to be charging them over time. And he's just cutting out what would be his commission. He's making personal sacrifices right now for some gain tomorrow, some security tomorrow. He's securing his liabilities. In the wheat exchange here, if you just did the numbers, and it's not important as a detail for the story, but it is interesting, uh, essentially what Jesus does here is describes something like a uh, probably a seven to ten year payoff and this guy reduces it by 20 percent so he reduces the guy's payoff time down to five years or less that's a pretty good deal and he does that because he doesn't have to take uh, what he would normally take in his in his unrighteous dealings and so that is why That's the story, by the way, that Jesus presents. And then in verse 8, he turns to what has got got to be somewhat of a surprising statement. His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. He had acted shrewdly. What did he mean? Because the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own, literally, generation. In other words, for temporary gain... They are so shrewd, so savvy, so clever. They will make sacrifices today to secure liabilities against tomorrow to make sure they take care of themselves and their life and and even sort of the unrighteous way the world's economy works. People do it all the time. They're very shrewd in their dealings because even if they, for unrighteous reasons, get cut off over here, they then turn a corner with an idea and secure something for themselves over here. This is savvy perception, savvy insight. 
And Jesus says in the story that the rich man praised him for that, not for his crookedness. He still gets fired according to the, the story, but nonetheless, he's praised for his savvy perception. You say, why is Jesus going to do that? Well, notice, first of all, in verse 8, as we kind of wind it up, and then I'll talk about the lessons next week. Notice he says the sons of this age, and he compares them or contrasts them with the sons of light. Sons of this age is merely a reference to the way pagans work in this world, your earthly existence, this temporal world, anything in contrast to the eternal age to come. And sons of light, therefore, has to be relating to the other statements here about eternity that are made. Notice the end of verse 9, the eternal dwellings. Notice verse 10, faithful in the little things. He'll be given much. Notice verse 11, uh, the person that's not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth won't be entrusted with the true riches. The sons of light have to be in reference to those who are entrusted with the true riches. If you've been faithful in the use of that which is another's, then you're going to be able to get that which you can call your own as the fruit of it, eternity in this sense. Notice verse 13, you can't serve God and wealth. Clearly he's talking when he says sons of light about people that aren't serving God and wealth, they're serving God. They're not divided in their interests. So essentially here he is saying, look, the sons of this age, pagans, people in the normal life who only have temporal life to look forward to, they are shrewd. They get it done. They have insight. They'll make sacrifices today to secure against their liabilities for tomorrow. And then he says this in verse 9, and I say to you, He's talking to his disciples here. By the way, that's emphatic in the original. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. That doesn't mean make make friends with with ill-gotten money. He's saying, no, with the wealth that that is temporal, that is part of the unrighteous world, even that which a pagan will use in an unrighteous way. Take those resources that you've been given And you make the kind of friendships that will receive you into eternal dwellings. Some people have thought this means God, God receives you in heaven or the angels receive you in heaven. Some commentators say this must mean people you've led to Christ and had a spiritual influence and they're in heaven by the time you get there. Look, Jesus isn't specifying who the they are. He's just saying the people in heaven, in the eternal dwellings, heaven itself, where you want to be your eternal soul, the fruit of all the glories God has planned. You use today's resources, today's earthly supply, today's earthly talents and time. You use those to build the kind of relationships that are just as savvy as a pagan would be when he makes sacrifices for some temporary gain. That is his main point. There are a whole bunch of lessons from this savvy steward that we'll talk about next time, but I don't want you to miss that main point right there. How do you look at what God has given you? The time that you have, the talent you have, the abilities you have, the resources you have, how do you view it? The article that I had read earlier in reference to this issue, said, how many missionaries have been held back by consumerism's short leash? We can't afford to go. 
How many church budgets have been strangled by consumerism's short-sighted vision? We can't afford to give. Or bringing it home into the way that young families worry about these financial difficulties. How many families have been capped by consumeristic spending forecasts? Oh, we have all this stuff. We're amassing all this stuff. We can't afford to grow our family. Bigger, better, newer, faster. The siren song of consumerism drowns out Jesus' anchoring promise. Behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, beloved, it's not wrong to have these things. Jesus will make that very, very clear. God gives money. You couldn't serve God, try to serve God and money if you didn't have money. It is a, a value system we use to trade commodities. But does how you live reflect that you're as savvy as, say, even a pagan steward who, who when he finds himself on the verge of destitution, insightfully puts together a relational dynamic that secures for him a future? What have you done to secure your continued eternal fruits by working on the relationship you have with eternal things, with heaven, with God's people, with the church, with the gospel, with the things that really matter like souls, with God himself, with your sanctification, with your growth, with the word of God? In your life, with regard to all that God's given you, are you, like Colossians 3 said, setting your mind on things that are on the earth to the detriment of being more used by God for the things of heaven? We are to use everything for eternal influence. That is what we're to do. And there are five lessons from this passage that we will look at next Lord's Day in the following verses after the story. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for just unfolding a simple little story for us and how it confronted the self-righteous leaders of Israel because it exposed them. They'd always been about their own reputation. They've always been about the glory of men and human achievement. They'd always been about power and money. And Lord, we're not to be about any of those things. You give us so much richly to be enjoyed. And we know we use them. We know we use wealth and we do enjoy the things that you've given to us, the fruit of our hands. It's, it's a joy to have those things. And we've been given in this country, likely in the history of the world, more than any other time or place. But it's also true, Lord, that this is not, this is not uh, neutral. It's a threat to us. Having been given so much, you, you demonstrated over and over again in your word that whenever prosperity and time were a part of Israel's history, they never did well because they didn't consider carefully how to be savvy with these things and advance relationships that are heavenly and advance resources that are kingdom-oriented to advance purposes in our lives and safeguards in our lives that take care of our eternity, that safeguard it, to build relationships that are influence for the kingdom and for eternity. 
that expands the redeeming purposes for which you saved us and placed us in this time, in this season. Lord, we are at times consumers when we when we know those things are dangerous. At times we're we're not very generous givers of time or talent or resources or priority or schedule. We thank you for the comforts you give. We thank you for the resources you give. But may we think carefully about our priorities and be savvy as sons of light to be faithful to what you gave so that the true riches and fruitfulness of eternal things can be a part of our usefulness. May we never scoff at such truth. Help us to grow even as we study this passage further. In Christ's name, amen.